Welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast. This is episode 927, my interview with Dr. Joe Luciani. We're discussing his new book titled Unlearning. We're discussing anxiety and depression. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Hidden Wire podcast, another interview here uh, with Dr. Joe Luciani. I hope you guys are doing well. This is a really cool conversation and a very important one too because anxiety and depression are very prevalent in the world at the moment and a lot of people um, face them, whether that's to a chronic level or a very mild form of anxiety or depression. Certainly I for one uh, can relate because I am a very anxious person and have had mild uh, depression tendencies as well in the past. So Dr. Joe Luciani, he's been a practicing clinical psychologist for more than 40 years and this topic of anxiety and depression is something that he's also been familiar with in his life and that's basically why he got into this field of research. So he deals with clients all the time and he does a lot of coaching I suppose in that sense. He's written a number of books and this book that we're discussing today is Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, the four-step self-coaching program to reclaim your life. So we do discuss these four steps in some depth, Um, there's a lot more depth to them um, but certainly it's quite refreshing and quite interesting uh, idea of how we can unlearn anxiety and depression. Guys, there's a lot to it and the practice is important and the tenacity, which he touches on at the end, is also very important for every aspect of our life is to keep on going regardless of how we might feel right now because this moment too will pass. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Cheers. Hi, Dr. Joe. Welcome to the Hidden Light Podcast. Great to have you here. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Hey, um, look, looking forward to our conversation today. You've just written a new book called Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, and you've got a, a four-step self-coaching program to to help people through anxiety and depression. Now, I don't know too much about anxiety and depression other than we, we see it and experience it ourselves and see it around us in society all the time, and anxiety and depression seem to be quite prevalent at the moment, from my perspective at least anyway, but... Tell us a bit about your background and, and why this area of research is, is quite important to you. Well, I guess, I guess it, it goes all the way back to growing up with anxiety uh, and, and some moderate depression. Uh, and, and, you know, I lost my father at a young age and uh, it, was, it was just starting to mount on me that I decided I needed some answers. Yeah. Uh, so I managed to get into uh, college a, a pole vaulting scholarship and, uh, and went off to school to study psychology because I felt there had to be answers. I, I'm the type of person that just doesn't accept the negative without a fight. And uh, so I started uh, in earnest to study the field of psychology. Uh, it, it did pay off eventually after you go through the muck and mire of all the traditionalists and learning theory and all that other stuff and we're working in the rat labs. So, so at the end of all of this, I could tell you that uh, what I have evolved was a system of dealing with anxiety and depression that not only worked for me, of course, but, but has worked for my patients for over 40 years. And the one thing that, that bothered me, I started out as a traditional Jungian psychologist uh, and and I, what bothered me was that as wonderful and as enlightening as a lot of these traditional views are, it wasn't getting to the point. People want to, to solve problems. They want answers. Mm. So 
being relatively impatient myself, this was how I decided on my self-coaching program, uh, which combines cognitive behavioral psychology, motivational coaching, and neuroplasticity, the ability to actually change the anatomy of our brain through learning. And this is a program that is uh, geared towards self-help. It's, it's a follow-along, four-step program. And I feel that people really want answers, just as I did and just as hungry as I was. Suffering is a great incentive to want to do something. So this is how Unlearning Anxiety and Depression came to being. This is, this is my seventh book in the series, and I feel it's the culmination of a whole evolution of my thinking. Okay, excellent. Um, well, congratulations, seventh book in the series. And you've written um, a number of different books as well, so lots of work and um, lots of experience and, and research going into these books, I'm sure. The anxiety and depression, um, the good news, I suppose, is that we can unlearn that. It's not something that's just a given and we can't fix. It's not a disease or something. Is that your perspective? Well, that, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly right. And my perspective is rather heretical in that I do treat anxiety and depression as habits. Habits. And I know that will, that will stir a lot of people in their seats listening to this. But if you think about it for a second, if, if you will accept the notion that insecurity is what underlies all of our tumult in life, it is insecurity and that feeling of vulnerability that creates a life of, of looking for control through worrying, through avoiding, through compulsivity. So if insecurity is the culprit... So sorry, control, insecurity and vulnerability are the sort of foundations of anxiety? Well, insecurity and vulnerability are what underlie anxiety and depression. And depression. From, and depression. Mm -hmm. From insecurity, we develop a lifestyle that is stressful because we are trying to compensate for our feelings of vulnerability. And it's the stress that ultimately depletes our chemistry and our emotions, creating anxiety and depression. So it is essential to realize that anxiety and depression are the end result of, of insecurity-driven thinking. And insecurity-driven thinking is what fuels anxiety and depression. So if you are anxious or depressed, you really have to discern what feeds it, what starves it, like any habit. If you're going to break a habit of anxiety and depression, you have to know the insecurity-driven thoughts that are feeding it. Now that's an and interesting um, yeah, way to break it down. I've, I've never really um, discussed it in that manner. So if we look at if we have anxiety or depression, we can go back to saying, well, it's some sort of stress buildup that's causing this. And that, that anxiety and depression, is that a chemical imbalance? Is that basically the, the, the crux behind it? You're one step ahead of me. That's exactly right, because stress depletes chemistry. Think right. of a bucket with holes poked in the bottom. What happens is that stress over time will deplete our natural balancing brain chemicals, dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin. They leak out from these holes punctured by insecurity-driven thinking. So if we plug up those holes, our natural homeostatic tendency to balance ourselves is recreated and we're able to sustain ourselves but medication by the way is a therapy facilitator until those holes get plugged up sometimes it's important to have the medication that can give us that balance hmm. yeah okay so it's, it's not a longer term solution having medication because it's not really plugging up the holes 
Exactly. Yeah, what it does is think of it as more of an artificial way of maintaining balance. The way to do it naturally is to plug up those holes. How do we plug up the holes? Well, we learn that by feeding anxiety and depression with insecurity-driven thinking, it will, it will sustain itself forever. Uh, it's not going anywhere. Like any habit, if you're a cigarette smoker and you keep having cigarettes, you're going to keep smoking. Hmm. Same, same with the habit of anxiety and depression. So what we have to do is start learning to differentiate facts from emotional fictions. We have to start realizing what we do every day that is feeding that habit. Once you start to break the habit or unlearn anxiety and depression, because the reason I use the term unlearning is because we learned. This is not a, a genetic problem. This is the, an acquired problem that comes from a life of stress, insecurity, and insecurity-driven thinking. So basically, it's important to recognize that like any habit, once you understand the dynamic of it, it's straightforward. It's not rocket science. Hmm. So are, are some people more inclined to, to be acceptable to anxiety and depression than others? Or is it more just because of their upbringing or circumstances in life generally contributing to this learned habit? Well, your, your questions are just dead on. I mean, absolutely correct. There are there are people with lower thresholds. This mm. is more of a genetic thing. Yeah. So, you see more so there is a genetic implication here? Yes, there is. Yeah. Uh, but I always say, even though you may have a genetic disposition, your, your mother may have been anxious or your father depressed, even if you have a genetic disposition, it is not a life sentence. Right, it right. is a, a tendency toward. So you have more vulnerability, so you are more susceptible, but doesn't mean, as I say, it's not a life sentence. You still need to realize that for you, it takes less to get you in that imbalanced state. So your work has to, to work be harder. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if we go back and look at, okay, well, I've, I've got some levels of anxiety in my life right now, and um, there's there's obviously stress there, then we need to unbreak where that stress is coming from, which could be an insecurity or invulnerability that we're, that we're facing. But how do you help people? And I guess you do this all the time with your clients, but how, do you, how, do, how would you help people uncover those stresses and when the source? Well, first of all, we should make a distinction between neurotic uh, stress and, and circumstantial stress. Okay. Uh, with this... With this COVID virus and what's going on in our world today, there is a certain degree of what we might call normal anxiety. Um, and, and by that, I mean it's proportionate, it's understandable, it's verifiable based on the facts of what's going on around us. So with circumstantial anxiety, it is, it is more of a straightforward approach to more or less reframe the way you think, to more or less have some perspective. But with neurotic anxiety, it is a disproportionate reaction to what might be going on in your life and it is a ruminative disproportionate ongoing stressor that really does bring you to your knees so it's it's really the perspective that matters uh, we aren't going to be stress-free when there are circumstantial stressors so that's that's to be sort of grappled with and understood but when it comes to the chronic ruminative the what ifing the living in the future, what if this happens, what if that happens, all of that 
is really something that can be mitigated and worked on and eliminated. And that's, that's where the training part comes in. You have to train yourself to kind of look at your life in a more realistic and holistic way and not be driven by insecurity into those what-ifs. Hmm. With anxiety, I mean, I, I faced some anxiety uh, a couple of years ago, which I was quite unaware of. Um, but apparently there was some stress in my life and, and still quite unaware of. But is that pretty common for people to be out there with this level of anxiety that they just seem to, to live with? Yes. People people have, uh, again, higher, lower tolerances. Mm. A lot of people will will realize that they, they they just see it as a natural steady state. They they say they kind of look at themselves and they identify with their anxiety and depression. Sometimes patients come into me and they're really quite aligned with their their condition and they they don't feel that there's another way out. They're coming in more out of curiosity, but they're so identified when they say I am depressed, they literally mean that. I am my depression. I, I quickly say to these people, no, you are not your depression or your anxiety. Anxiety and depression are an overlay, like a jacket that we put on. Right. It's an overlay to your personality. Underneath that jacket, that overlay is an inviolate person that is needing to be released. And it's only going to be released if we take away the insecurity-driven thinking that frames our life in dark colors. Mm, okay. So how do we how do we start to un, unlearn and... and um, change the way we're thinking to change the habits of, of anxiety and, and depression? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, you know, we can go through this, the four steps that might help if you'd like to start that if way. If you'd like to, yeah. Yep. So the, fir- the first step is, is, is really the crucial step in getting started. It's learning to separate facts from insecurity-driven fictions. Now, the way to do that is to kind of develop a a depersonalized view of your own thinking. So you need to take a step back from your thoughts, kind of like a a court stenographer who just records the facts of what's being said in the court without judging or reacting. He or she is just taking notes of what's going on. We need to take a step back, depersonalize, and just observe the thoughts that are going through our our minds at any given moment, particularly in the moments where we feel stress or anxiety or depression. So we take a step back and we just now begin to record. Now, as we're observing dispassionately, we ask the question, the pivotal question, is what I'm feeling factual, based in reality, or is it disproportionate emotional fiction? Now, if it feels like the world is ending. That doesn't mean the world is ending. Feelings are not facts. So we have to be very careful with step one because we tend to confabulate feelings with facts just because it feels like that. Mm. Well, that's a a big starting part of the uh, the problem, I suppose, and the solution there as well. But are there some, because I guess this is is depending on, on the level of anxiety and depression one might face, um, a lot longer more drawn out process this fact versus fiction finding is there i'm sorry i was just going to say are there practices like to help people get get into this ability to to do that like do you you know offer them meditation services or things like that 
Well, let's 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 progress from from step one to step two. That's mm -hmm. where the exercises are. But but step one, uh, the reason step one is so critical is because it, it lets you know you have choice. If you can say, if you can look at your thoughts and discern, is that a fact or a fiction? That puts you in a place of choice because if you determine it's a fiction, an emotional fiction, then you can realize, well, what what should I do with this? If I know it's a fiction. Do I go along with that or do I look at a more objective view? So once we start to discern facts from fictions, we're in a place of control. Now we go to step two. Well, how do I stop these thoughts? And anyone with severe anxiety, they just have these run, runaway train thoughts that just keep going and going. Hmm. There, there are three techniques I offer to stop. One is called the ABC technique. And the ABC technique is this. Uh, we can't stop an insecurity-driven thought from percolating up into our mind. For example, what if I lose my job over this COVID? Okay, we can't stop a thought like that from just pow, popping into our mind. Mm, no. What we can do is not add on to that a B thought. And if I lose my job, then how will I pay the rent? And then a C thought. And if I can't, so in other words, you can't stop the A thought, but you darn well can stop feeding it with a B thought, a C thought, all the way through the alphabet. Okay. So the, so the ABC technique is learning to cognitively, actively being in controlled enough to say, I've got to nip this in the bud. I'm not going to contribute and follow this train of thinking. Now, one way to step apart from that train of thinking, I, I call it kind of a, a defocusing. Uh, and, and the way we do that, I, my son used to live in Manhattan, and I was sitting with him one time, and I said, how do you, how do you stand the noise out in the street, the cars, the horns? And he, he said, what noise? Hmm. And it, it occurred to me that his brain had actively just shut out those noises. He really didn't hear them. Now, the reason he didn't hear them is because he trained his brain, and that's the neuroplasticity of our brain. He trained his brain to not focus on the noise. So the noise eventually became irrelevant. Right. So this technique of defocusing is, is really an active technique where we turn away and realize that we don't have to pay as much attention to that which bothers us. So we turn our gaze and our attention away. We, we move toward understanding that we, we don't have to be part of it. It's like a stream. The stream with anxiety thoughts, if you're in that stream, you can't separate yourself from it. But if you step out of the stream, the thoughts are still there. You're just not connecting with them. Hmm. So, so that's, that's one way to realize that you can train your brain to not focus on that which disturbs you by turning away from it to more relevant things, just looking around your environment and being more present. That is a way to just ignore actively ignore and let's use that term actively ignore this is not a passive process so yeah. you actively ignore those thoughts so that thought that comes in rather than allowing it to snowball and attaching to that thought and letting it drag us everywhere we sort of just nip it in the bud and, and shut it down absolutely yeah and i should make a differentiation between active i call it active mind yeah. and passive mind Hmm. Past mind allows insecurity-driven thinking to just have us. We're in the back seat, mm -hmm. and insecurity is driving the train. Uh, so that's passive mind. We allow the insecurity to just ramble around in our heads, and we just go along. What if? What if? What if that happens? What? So we're too passive. Active mind is taking cognitive 
steps forward and realizing that you have a choice with your own thinking. See, we've become so passive, we don't realize that our consciousness really has a choice to say no to certain thoughts, to separate. And the third technique which can help with that is called envisioning. We know that when you vision yourself on a beach, for example, when you see yourself in a relaxed environment and really get into that visualization, what happens is we switch from sympathetic to parasympathetic to sympathetic nervous system. Hmm. And what that means is we go from the alert fight or flight stage of our own internal chemistry to a more relaxed state. So that happens when we visualize. One of my favorite visualizations is a patient told me this. You're holding a bunch of balloons, brightly colored balloons. Let go of one of the balloons, let's say a red balloon, and imagine you're looking at it as it goes up and recedes and gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And you do that balloon by balloon, but you do that so actively that you're putting your whole attention onto that to the exclusion of any other thoughts. So not only are you turning away and defocusing on the anxiety or depression thoughts, but you're actually taking your chemistry and relaxing your whole physiology, which then makes breaking the pattern of these anxiety and depression thoughts much easier. Okay, so, so is that like a particular visualization technique there, that you, like with the balloons, or is it people can visualize anything? Yeah, you can visualize anything. In fact, there was a study done where uh, some basketball players were split into two groups. One group practiced throwing free throws into the basket. The other group sat on the bench and watched. Over a six-month period, they, they tested the, the ability of these players. And the ones that sat on the bench actually did better than the ones that practiced. You see, the mind is so capable of envisioning and working through and thinking through to actually performing. But when it comes to visualizations, any visualization that brings you to a place where you can distract it. One, another one I like, just an example, would be, let's say you live in a, a very noisy neighborhood and you have all these windows open and all the noise, the cacophony of sounds is disturbing you. Well, see yourself going over to window by window by window slowly closing each window, hearing the voices and the noise diminish. Go to the next window, slowly, and you keep doing this. See, you actively have to grab your mind and pay attention to these visualizations for them to work. Hmm. The visualization technique is, is certainly uh, one that a lot of people use um, to start their day or end their day. They have this powerful visualization process to help them, you know, I guess, create more of a positive mindset um, to help them attract those things rather than focusing on some of the negatives. But if you're very much inclined or, or bound by anxiety and depression and have these thoughts coming up that are very um, insecure, etc., wouldn't they impede on that visualization process? They, they do, and certainly at first more so than later. This is why <clears throat> with anything that we do as human beings, we have to practice mm -hmm. to break habit or to gain any habit one needs to practice these exercises are designed to be practiced every day if, yeah. if you pick a guitar and want to play a piece uh, like uh, Malaguena or something uh, you, you're just not going to do that without practicing every day Don't I know. so <laughs> so if, if, if one takes the time to just a few minutes a day to just put themselves in the active posture of practicing some of these techniques, what happens is you're actually changing your brain's anatomy. 
This is not uh, fiction. There were in London, the cab drivers, the black cab drivers are given this extensive exam in order to get a license. It takes sometimes two years mm. and they have to memorize something like 20,000 different directions and, and landmarks. Their brains were studied before and after. The hippocampus, the navigation center of the brain, actually grew significantly in cab drivers, but did not grow in bus drivers. Why is that? Bus drivers do the same route. They don't have to navigate. That part of the brain wasn't exercised. So, yes, we want to change the brain. When I say we change or break a habit, mm. we're actually doing that on the, the neuron, neuron level of the brain. We're actually changing our brain. That's why practice needs to be understood. It's a way of really rewiring the neuroanatomy of your brain. Yeah, very good. And I, I suppose in saying that too, um, practicing these in different situations rather than just in, in one particular, you know, wake up in the morning and sit on your chair, the same chair every day, practicing it, practicing it when you're at, at work and stressed out about something, practicing it when you're in the car, stressing out about something. That's right. And that brings us to step three, which ties this all together. <clears throat> step three is called responsive living. Let's say I, I get in my car and I am afraid that I, a squirrel might run in front of my car. So I sit there behind the wheel frozen and I say, well, what will I do? Do I hit the brake? Do I turn the wheel? So we're getting all congested with these anxiety, what if thinking. Hmm. What we want to do in responsive living is get in that car and if I have the thought, what if a squirrel runs in front of the car, to just go ahead and say, well, if that happens, I'm going to just trust my natural instincts. I'm going to realize that I'm a survival machine. If I have to hit the brake, if I have to turn the wheel, I'll trust in that moment that I'll react responsively to what happens. So it's learning to trust that you don't have to anticipate life. You have to live it as it unfolds. And this comes down to learning self-trust. And self-trust is ultimately what frees you from insecurity. You see, insecurity is the place of vulnerability. Hmm. Insecurity-driven thinking tells us we can't handle life. So therefore, we have to worry about it. We have to anticipate it. That's what insecurity does. Self-trust through responsive living tells us that, wait a second, how many problems have I solved in my life? Hundreds, thousands, ten thousands. I've gotten through each and every one somehow because I'm a survival machine. I have the tools. The more I self-trust, the more I rely on my responsive way to react to life, the more fluid my life becomes, the more relaxed it becomes because now I'm living in the present. I'm not living in some future. I call this whole what-if, worrisome thinking, time traveling. Stay present. Stay where you are. Be responsive. If you're going to a party, don't stand outside the door wondering, am I dressed okay? Will everyone like me? Open the door, walk in, and react responsively to what does happen. Yeah, yeah, rather than over-analyzing everything, um, which must be difficult for, for a lot of people. The, the, just going on the anxiety, with the what-ifs and thinking about the future, that's basically an anxiety um, process. Their depression is more of, of thinking about the past. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, anxiety is, is living in the future. Uh, most anxiety patients that I work with uh, are very rarely present. They're always anticipating what's coming around the corner. Mm. Because worry gives the illusion that you're doing something when, in fact, you're really doing nothing. But it gives you the illusion that you're at least doing something. You're worrying about what you could do tomorrow if such and such happens. 
And, and one thing I've noticed with worrying, which, which underlies both anxiety and depression, one thing I've noticed with depression is that people are loath to, to stop worrying because they're almost superstitious about it. If I stop worrying, something bad's going to happen. I was working with a woman who was going mm -hmm. for, uh, for a, a test for cancer. And she, uh, the diagnosis was unclear and she needed further testing. So she was worrying herself sick, physically sick. And, 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 and she was saying, uh, we were talking about worry, and I was telling her my feeling about what worrying is all about. And she said, oh, no, I, I can't stop worrying. I hear what you're saying, but I don't want to take the chance because if I stop worrying, something bad will happen. So we see there is a superstitious aspect to it. Sometimes there's a magical aspect to it that the worrying is going to really make everything change for you in the future. So we, we get hooked into seeing anticipatory worrying as, as a vehicle for staying safe. And again, going back to what I was saying previously, that becomes relevant to someone with not enough self-trust. Mm. So the more lacking you are in self-trust, the more you worry. With depression, typically it has to do with the past impinging on the present, the past that we're afraid to let go of, or that we are still dealing with in a very primitive way. Without self-trust, uh, we're un unable to extricate ourselves from maybe the primitive uh, shackles of the past. Something that may have happened 20 or 30 years ago can haunt you if, in fact, the insecurity is, is allowing that to be a present tense problem. Mm. So being present means truly letting go of the past, letting go of the future, and living your life in the present. <clears throat> Yeah, that the building uh, self trust is is obviously again a practice and a process that, that you have to go through. Um, you make an interesting point, which I I kind of find um, quite comforting, and that is that you know regardless you know if I'm dealing myself with stress right now about something or depressed about something, I have to look at my life and go, hang on, I'm 38 years old now, and look at all the things that I have gotten through in my life. Um, but I, and, you know, and that's really I think that's really refreshing. But a lot of people would find that quite difficult to still allow them to, to see the positives, you know, be grateful for where they are today. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard. Somebody that's so fearful that they're so clinging to worrying, for, for you to say to them, it's do nothing because that's doing something. Uh, and, and by that, what I mean is that sometimes it's as easy as just letting life unfold. You don't have to be doing something to really be content and anxiety-free. The anxiety person is constantly in the future, so they're always doing something about that future. But to do nothing is really doing something. Hmm. You know, there's, a, there's a Zen adage that says, chop wood, carry water. Life can be that simple. We need to focus on what we're doing whether it be washing a dish in the sink or just getting dressed. If we focus on what we're doing and don't live somewhere else, some other mind, mind traveling somewhere else, mm -hmm. we're, we're living a better life. Another adage was uh, St. Francis of Assisi was hoeing his garden, and someone came up to him and said, what will you do if the world ends tonight? And St. Francis said, I will finish hoeing my garden. And I think that's a great anecdote. I think that... We live in this moment. There may be a catastrophic moment in the future, but the moment is precious. And if you want to live correctly, it's learning to live in that moment, hmm. not at 
Mark Twain once said, I've worried about many things in my life, most of which have never happened. Yeah. And that's, that's really the truth about our worrisome uh, anxiety dispositions. Yeah, yeah, and, and long-term. I'm, I'm a very anxious person, and my mind is constantly in the future. Um, but mm-hmm. certainly continual practices that I use to help me be present um, do help. Yeah, this whole, this whole uh, thrust towards mindfulness is, is all about that. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's certainly worth the practice. Responsive living is not only being mindful of the present, but it's being cognizant of the fact that you can be responsive to what life throws at you. You know, we have two million years of, of DNA training. In, you know, we're, we're, we're a pretty formidable species. Hmm. We wouldn't be here today if we didn't have all the mechanisms that are necessary. For example, the fight-flight uh, the limbic system, that's the lower part of the brain, the primitive brain, as they say, or, or the lizard brain. The, when, when we're confronted with danger, um, the cognition in our mind shuts down and the primitive side of us, instinctual side of us takes over and we react. Boom. In the, in the second, in that nanosecond, if we had to think about, hmm, should I move over if this car is coming down the block too fast? If you had to think about things like being run over by a car, it might be too late. You have to have another part of your brain that just reacts. So we, we have we have both instinctual survival talents and we have emotional survival talents. But the thing is, with self-trust, you begin to rely on the tools that you possess. It is the person that does not rely on their tools, their self-trust, that is doomed to be anxious or depressed. Hmm. So so if, if one says, yeah, I can't shake this anxiety, well, you're, you're essentially saying, well, I really can't develop enough self-trust. And think of self-trust as a muscle. Hmm. You know, it's, it's an atrophied muscle if you're anxious or depressed. But if you, if you work at being an active mind participant in separating facts from fictions, learning what feeds this habit, you, know, you are going to develop that muscle. It's like going to the gym and getting reps. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Responsive living. What is step four? Well, step four is the motivational aspect of hmm. of self teaching, and it, it always occurred to me that one thing psychology seemed to be lacking, especially traditional psychology, was that it was very a passive approach to patients that were suffering. And you know, we'd sit there and uh, stroke our collective beards, or at least the men. And uh, and we would, we would just say, well, how do you feel about that? And, you know, this was the old traditional, the Freudian, Jungian model. Um, as I went through the years, I've been practicing well over 40 years now, I, I realized that people need to be engaged in, in their own healing, especially depressed people who don't have the energy. And one way I, I really accomplished that was to kind of reflect that enthusiasm and hopefulness in the sessions themselves. And I, I try to do that in the book as well, because in the book, you know, it's important for you to become your own coach. And, and there are many kind of daily affirmations and coaching affirmations and things like that. And they, they are pep talks and they are the more superficial part of, of the program, but they're nevertheless just as critical because if you're going to fight the good fight, you really have to be motivated to go the distance. You know, it's, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Yeah, yeah. If, in order to run that marathon, you have to be your best advocate. I've run four marathons in my life, and I know that when you get close to that 26-mile mark, 
everything in you wants to quit. Every bone in your body, every ligament wants to stop and just bail. But that's where the coaching comes in. That's where the motivation comes in. And, and motivation over time, where the determination comes in. So the step four is building that determination and building the grit that's necessary. Because there's going to be times where you say, oh, this isn't working. You know, that whining. Mm-hmm. Oh, gee, I've been doing this for a week now and I'm still anxious. You need to get over that. You need to develop that grit. Because if you're going to win this battle, and it's an important battle, we're talking about your life mm-hmm. and how important is that so if you're going to whine about it and bail out because it's a little bit of work well then of course you'd get what you deserve unfortunately 100 percent, and i love that um and i was going to mention it before when you were talking for me personally uh you know tuning into podcasts reading motivational books having a lot of positive talk that i'm consuming has just kept me motivated to continually try and, and practice of living a better life for myself rather than being bound by depression and anxiety. That's right. And, and I'm sure you'll attest to the fact that <clears throat> words, as, as inspiring and motivational as they seem, are not going to do a darn thing. They're not going to change you unless you change you. So you have to mm. take those words, you have to digest them, incorporate them, and you have to make those words work for you. So you're not going to heal yourself by reading a book, even my book. Uh, you're going to have to apply the tenets in a way that is going to change the anatomy of your brain. This is the end goal of a life separate from suffering. Yeah, but, you know, the words and the motivation there, it's not going to change things. But as you said, it gives you that energy to continue to have that grit, to persevere. Absolutely. Because it's bloody tough, isn't it? It is, as you would say, bloody tough. Bloody tough. Uh, what um what what are your sort of routines like, Doctor Joe? During uh, you know you've you've had the anxiety and depression, and you've done this for many many years and helped many clients. Do you have particular routines now that you still practice? I do. I uh, well, I, I do. I do practice in the evenings now. So I have my daytimes until dinner time each day. Uh, I jog. I usually start off with a, a jog, a, a light jog, nothing nothing marathon wise, but. Two to five miles is is really refreshing. Uh, it's meditational for me, so that's why I've been able to stay with jogging since 1977. Yeah. Uh, and I, don't, I rarely miss a day, rain or shine, snow or sleep. Uh, it, it's all a challenge sometimes. The weather makes it even more fun. So I start off with a jog three or four times a week. I'll do some weights just to keep the old body in shape uh, and the wife happy. And... Uh, and, and also, what I like to do is, uh, I'm a hobbyist. I love gardening. I love things. I love nature. And recently, uh, I've always been into astronomy, but recently I've gotten into astrophotography, which is a very demanding hobby, which will take you into the wee hours of the morning as you sit there and, and just, you know, are able to use te- electronic technology to grasp some of these wonderful things. Even in my light-polluted skies right outside of Manhattan, I'm able to see nebula and galaxies that were heretofore impossible to see unless you went on a a mountaintop in the Himalayas. Hmm. So uh, I'm a vivid hobbyist. Uh, I'm a a very intense family man. I'm now finally a grandfather and uh, spend a lot of time with my my two wonderful children and their spouses. So uh, I have a very rich life. I've come from a place of anxiety and depression. 
Um, I do a lot of uh, um, social media, trying to help people from all over the world. My books have been translated into 10 languages, which gives me the opportunity to really reach people in the far corners of the earth. Mm. That is such a charge, such a thrill to, to realize that me, Joe Luciani, this, this kid from Hudson Street, who, who almost amounted to nothing when I was loading trucks before I went to college, uh, that I'm able to help people feel better uh, yeah. just over the world. I'm not curing the world. I'm not a megalomania. But I know that my little techniques do offer solace to a lot of people, and, and thereby uh, I will feel I have lived a very rich life. 100%, man. I love it. And looking back at your life of people out there that, that may be having – uh, struggling with some anxiety and depression. Obviously, the stuff you've shared today is great and, you know, encourage everyone to go out and pick up a book. But what are the, the top three lessons that you've had in your life now that you'd go, you know, these are the three things that, the three rules of life for me? Well, I would say the number one rule is tenacity, that um, patience and fortitude conquers all. Hmm. I believe that might have been Emerson. I'm not sure, but it doesn't matter. What is important is that if there is a goal, and if that goal is elusive, uh, and if you are determined to get to that goal, um, there's a way. Now, this is this is something I dearly believe, and that is that think of a house. There's a front door; it may be locked. There's a side door; it may be locked. There's a back door. There are windows. There's a cellar door. There's always a way in. You've got to be determined enough to find your way. You may have to reinvent your, your whole attitude toward what you're doing, but there's always a way. If you are convinced that you'll find a way, you'll find a way. Mm. It may not be conventional. It may be stepping out of the box. Yeah. Uh, but tenacity, I would say that that's rule number one. Rule number two is connect with nature, both inner and outer. Uh, there's a lot to be learned. Eckhart Tolle says, when you see a tree, try not to describe it and judge it in your mind. That is a tree or that is a treeness. Try to see it without the thoughts connected to it. Try to just be and allow that tree to impress you without giving it a category. Try to relate to nature in a nonverbal way. That's the meditative way of just being in life itself and realizing that what we think is important, but there's much more to us. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist, would say that the ego, that, that thinking part of us, is a small island in this vast ocean of intuition and collectiveness. So you are much more than the thoughts you have. Mm. So appreciate that which goes beyond those thoughts. And the last thing I would say is important for, for all human beings is, is the social connectedness. Mm. Uh, and it, whether it be through friendships, through loving friendships, through intimacies, or just through sharing and paying things forward, the more you relate to other human beings, I think the more it enriches your life and the more that you learn about yourself. Uh, I'm an only child. It took me a while to really learn to be unselfish. Sometimes I have to kick myself for forgetting that. But by and large, it's a liberating experience to really want to give of who and what you are to others. So that would be my three off the top of my head. You've done well there. <laughs> Very well. <laughs> Hard set of questions, mate. I really appreciate you coming on today. You've shared loads of uh, really cool stuff. Um, and there was points there that I had to bite my tongue that we could talk for much longer on, on many of these points. 
Um, there's a lot more into it. Uh, encourage everyone to pick up a book. Dr. Joe, where can people, um, obviously the book's on Amazon, where can people reach out to you and find more about your work? Uh, my website is very inclusive. It's uh, www.selfcoaching.net, N-E-T. And uh, all my books are listed there, a lot of videos, a lot of articles. I do a blog just about every single day, so check the blog section. And uh, be glad to have you come by and contact me. That's awesome, mate. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for coming on. You're quite welcome, and thank you. Guys out there listening, check it all out at thehiddenwhy.com. We'll talk soon. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels, using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is lee manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon